Hi everybody, Pete Sardis for The Lawyer You Know. We are back again talking about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos trial. This is week three. Uh, this is an update to our last video. And before we go into it, let me thank everybody that watched the video and that left comments. I'm very thankful for all of the feedback. What I'm gonna do today is we're gonna talk about what has happened in the trial so far. And after that, I'm gonna take a few minutes and answer the questions that we've gotten over the last few days on the last video we did. So. If you enjoyed this video, give me a thumbs up. If you like what you're seeing, subscribe. It really helps us out. If you have questions, please let me know what your questions are and I will do my best to make sure I get answers to you as quickly as I can. But please understand this is a four month trial. There's gonna be a lot of material and a lot of things are gonna happen. So I will get to as much as I can as quickly as I can. So let's kind of take a step back and talk about where we stopped last time. If you all remember, Erica Chung, one of the scientists at Theranos was on the stand when we did the last video. She has now completed her testimony. And the basic gist was this. She recognized that there were quality control issues because the Edison machine, which is their actual Theranos hardware, was not meeting quality control standards. And in fact, she testified that one out of every four tests that they were producing in the lab were actually failing. So what does she do? She testifies that she kind of reached out to some of her colleagues uh, to see what their results were looking like. For example, thyroid tests, she found out that 51% of the results that Theranos was putting out there on their Edison machine were bad readings. So she reaches out ultimately to a guy by the name of Tyler Schultz. And this guy is important. Tyler Schultz is another obviously scientist at Theranos, but what makes him important is his grandfather is George Schultz, the former Secretary of State of the United States and a board member for Theranos. And she reaches out to Tyler by email and basically saying, look, I'm having these problems. This is what I'm seeing. Are you seeing this any issues on your side of the, you know, of the testing? The email response was, the information we're getting in syphilis, which I guess is he works in the syphilis blood test side, is a bunch of noise. And I presume what that means is they were not getting good results on his lab results either. So Ms. Chung testifies she went to see Sammy Balwani, who as you remember is the CEO of Theranos and also Elizabeth Holmes' uh, love interest at the time. Her testimony was that when she told Mr. Balwani about the issues that she was identifying with the reliability of the tests, he became agitated with her and he became angry and he basically dismissed her telling her, you just go back and you know, just do the tests and we'll leave the rest to us. This concerned her a lot and she actually winds up testifying that she quit because of this conversation with Sammy Balwani. On cross-examination, to be fair, the defense asked her about what would happen if an Edison machine had a quality control fail. And in fairness, she did testify that if they had a failure either on the sample side or on the hardware side, they would recalibrate the machine and not run any samples on that specific machine until it did in fact come back online and pass quality control standards. But on redirect, and what I mean by that is the prosecution called Ms. Chung as a witness she testified for them, the defense has an opportunity to cross-examine her, and then after that cross-examination, the government has a chance to do what's called a rehabilitation or a redirect. And on redirect, they asked her to kind of go through the process of uh, calibrating the machine. And she says that a calibration, if everything went right, takes 14 hours. 
And she said that there were times when she would have uh, employees working double shifts and sleeping in their cars to get the uh, Edison machines calibrated because they were having calibration failures or things just systems weren't weren't coming online like they're supposed to. She said because they were having these huge problems with the calibration of these machines that they would have tests that were supposedly, uh, results were supposed to be back in like two hours and those tests would take three days to get back because of the tremendous load it was taking um, to actually get the machines calibrated again. Ultimately, she testified that she left and this is interesting. She gets another job and somewhere in this other job she reports to the regulatory agencies, and I think a reporter, that the Theranos results really are not as good as what they're claiming or touting them to be. There's a man in a car in the parking lot of her new job, and he is there all day long. And she basically stayed late at night and was seeing that it's her car and this other car is the only two cars in the parking lot. She comes downstairs to go to her car, and the guy in their car gets out and serves her with paperwork. The paperwork was basically a cease and desist notice and what she basically testified to was the, the letter uh, was a warning that if she continued to breach confidentiality, because there's obviously confidentiality agreements in, the, in these types of companies, and discussing the proprietary information that they would sue her. And I'm guessing when you're you know a young person right out of school, this is your first real job, and you're making 19 bucks an hour is what she testified, it, it really scared her at, at that time. The documents that have come out just in the prosecution's case in chief so far indicate that Theranos paid $150,000 to private investigators on the Schultz slash Chung file. So I'm presuming what that means, or at least what it seems like it means, is that Theranos spent $150,000 on private investigators keeping an eye on Tyler Schultz and, uh, and Erica Chung. One of the questions that I've received uh, that I think is important right now is, will Tyler Schultz testify? And that's an interesting question. Tyler Schultz's name appears on the government's witness list. So technically, he is a potential witness in this trial. But let's talk reality. When you are talking about people like the grandson of the Secretary of State of the United States who happens to be the uh, on the board of directors of Theranos, people in political power don't really like to have their family members put on the stand and deposed about issues because it could always come back to bite them. There could always be a personal impact further on down the road. So the fact that they're putting in information, for example, Tyler Schultz slash uh, you know, Miss Chung's uh, file for uh, Theranos's private investigator leads me to believe that they may not actually call Tyler Schultz live. Now, might they? Sure, they might. I don't know that, but I'm guessing that if the Schultz family, who is, let's be realistic, politically very prominent, has their way, they're going to prefer that Tyler Schultz not testify and that any information that he could provide can be provided through other sources, for example, like Ms. Chung or email correspondence between him and other people. But we'll see how that goes. The next witness that took the stand, and I believe this was Friday, is a gal by the name of Circa Gangadecker. And I apologize if I'm butchering her name. She was the manager in charge of development for the blood test machine, uh, again, uh, Edison. She worked for Theranos for eight years. Four of those years were directly for Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, and here's why this testimony is, in my opinion, 
the most interesting testimony that we've heard so far. It's not necessarily what she says, but it's what happens before she takes a stand. Miss Gangadecker has been given immunity. And I want to clarify what that means for you all because this is a huge deal. There are two types of immunity in, in the federal practice. One is called transactional immunity. The other one is called use or sometimes derivative use immunity. Immunity for the most part is very rare. The majority of the immunity that you see is derivative use. And let me give you an example. What derivative use immunity means is, let's just say I kidnapped someone and I went to a hardware store and bought rope to tie you up. If I have derivative use immunity from the government, my words can't be used against me. So the government can say that I said, I went to the hardware store, bought rope with my credit card to tie this person up. But they can go to the hardware store and they can ask for the credit card receipt and they can use that credit card receipt against me for the purchase of the rope because it is from a derivative source. That's the majority of what you see when we hear about immunity. That's immunity that is granted normally at the United States Attorney's Office level. This, and it's my understanding, I cannot confirm it, but based on what has transpired, it leads me to believe that she has transactional immunity, which means she has no Fifth Amendment privilege. Anything she says, as long as it is honest, cannot be used against her, and this is super rare. Normally, to get transactional immunity, you've got to go up to the Department of Justice, you've got to go to Washington. Uh, normally, the, you know, the local U.S. Attorney's offices don't, don't deal on this level of immunity. But before she took the stand last week, the judge advised her of her immunity and told her she has no Fifth Amendment privilege. At this point, she's testifying with, frankly, no fear of repercussion from the government, except obviously if she were to testify untruthfully. So here's what she's talking about. Like I said, eight years with the company, four years directly with Elizabeth Holmes. And she testified that there were some discussions between her and Ms. Holmes that she was uncertain about whether the reliability of Edison was good enough to do the Walgreens launch. And the Walgreens launch is important in this case because the Walgreens launch back in 2013 was really what put Theranos on the map as a company. Before that, it's just some startup. It's not really getting a lot of, um, a lot of attention. But when you go live with a company like Walgreens to put a machine into every location that will allow you to test your blood from everything from diabetes to HIV with a single drop of blood, this is huge. Now, the testimony was that they only went live for about 40 stores with Walgreens and that over the course of two years, I think it was 2016 when, they, when Walgreens pulls the plug, the results were not great. Walgreens figured it out and severed their relationship with, with Theranos and actually went as far as to invalidate any blood test that had been done on an Edison machine. That's pretty much the extent of her testimony, but the fact that she got immunity for that, uh, I find to be very interesting. What she has done as she has linked the knowledge about the Edison machine's shortcomings directly to Elizabeth Holmes. The other thing that she testified to, which I think is probably a little bit more interesting, is she actually kept records because she thought that all this stuff was potentially gonna come back on her and that she would be somehow blamed for these results being wrong. So she actually kept her own series of documents, which is important because if you remember in one of the videos we did previously, the servers for Theranos were purged sometime in 2018 and 2019 and all the material were 
I guess, destroyed, lost, use the word you want to use. But at this point, she has a copy of these things in her possession, and that is what has gone into evidence so far. Third witness, first medical provider, her name is Audra Zachman. Now, Miss Zachman, I should say, uh, Nurse Zachman is an ARNP, a nurse practitioner. She testified uh, earlier this week that she was in a practice. The practice had an obstetrics practice, I should say. Her practice had a patient. That patient was a young woman who was also a medical professional herself. She was an, a medical assistant and she had had three miscarriages and she was pregnant again. Her testimony is the, uh, the patient had two tests from Quest Diagnostic to monitor her HCG levels, which apparently is a hormone that uh, is, a, is a telltale sign about a viability of a pregnancy. Quest Diagnostic, big lab, traditional laboratory, two tests, everything seemed to be okay. At some point, this particular patient, who by the way is named uh, Brittany Gould, went to a Walgreens to have a Theranos test done by, of course, the Edison machine. That test came back wildly skewed. Based on that information that the patient got, Ms. Zachman testified that she came into her office, they reviewed the, uh, the tests, and they had a conversation with, with Ms. Gould, which was, look, it looks like this pregnancy, based on these numbers, is not viable. It looks like it's gonna be another miscarriage. Do you want to abort this child? The discussions at some point, she talks about on the stand, came to a place where they said, let's just get another blood test and just confirm or you know confirm these results before we do any drastic decisions. So she goes back to Quest again for two additional blood tests, both of which indicating that that particular hormone was fine. Ultimately, she had a baby. Miss Zachman or Nurse Zachman then indicates that she called Theranos and said, what in the heck is going on? These numbers are just totally skewed. She testified that the response that she, she got from Theranos was, it was a human error. Somebody put a decimal point in the wrong place. But she testified that even with the decimal point in the wrong place, the results still don't make sense. In response to that communication with the company, she received a letter back from Elizabeth Holmes' brother, taking responsibility for the, the inaccurate result, indicating that it was human error and expressing to her that these are very rare and they, you know, they almost never happen. On cross-examination, the defense lawyers asked her about her relationship, her practice's relationship, with Theranos because apparently the practice, the obstetrics practice and Theranos had an agreement to kind of use the Edison machine for some of these uh, patients just to kind of get a baseline in the use of the machine out in the public. She testified that the results were normally not good for that specific Edison machine and that she found that there were a lot of problems. In fairness, the defense lawyers asked her how many tests were run. She didn't know. They also asked her, Give me the names of all the tests of the patients that you believe were skewed. And the only response she could give was this particular patient, Miss Gould. So I'm not sure how effective that testimony is gonna be overall, but I will tell you what testimony I believe was very effective. And that is the testimony of Brittany Gould herself. She is one of 11 patients that are on the government's witness list and she is the first patient to actually take the stand. Interestingly enough, before she took the stand, the defense filed a motion in limine to limit her testimony of what she could talk about because what she was anticipated to testify to was that she had this test at the Walgreens, 
the, the numbers were skewed and the emotional trauma of being a woman that's had three miscarriages in the midst of a pregnancy she just found out is potentially not viable and how she felt emotionally about that. The judge has ruled that that portion of the testimony, the emotional response testimony was not coming into evidence, although Ms. Gould could testify to what she had experienced. So what wound up happening, which was very consistent with what her ARNP had testified to before her was, I've had three miscarriages, I'm 24 years old, I'm a medical professional. I've had blood tests at uh, Quest and I'm just anxious. So I'm like, wow, this Theranos machine really works well. Um, it looks like it's easy, it's inexpensive. I can go down to the Walgreens and just go get a test to make sure everything is okay with my baby. She gets a result consistent with her ARMP. The result numbers don't make sense. She then goes back to her doctor's office where she's told that again, the pregnancy is probably not viable. Do you want to abort? Her response was, let's get some additional blood tests. She gets two more tests at Quest. Both of those blood tests are within normal limits. She in fact has a healthy baby. So that is how her testimony has concluded at this point. So we're gonna keep doing this as long as you like it. If everybody's enjoying these videos, if you're liking my content, I appreciate all the wonderful comments in the video before. Keep letting me know that you enjoy it and I'll keep doing these responses. So at this point, before I get to the questions that you all have asked, I'm gonna ask you for a couple of things. Number one, what do you think? Let me know in the comments. Do you think the testimony at this point is coming out pro-Elizabeth Holmes or against her? Do you think that Tyler Schultz is gonna testify? What do you think is gonna happen between now and the next four weeks? And if you want, you can ask me and I may make some predictions as the trial continues to go on as to what I think is gonna happen. That being said, if you like this video, give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe to our page. And obviously you'll get notifications on when I do additional videos on this topic. And again, always leave me questions. Let's go to some of the questions you all have asked about what's going on around this case. The first one I wanna talk about is a question I think is really cool. Somebody asked, where are all the civil lawsuits? Like is nobody suing Theranos? Yes, people are suing Theranos, actually, those lawsuits have already, for the most part, resolved themselves. And here's what's happened. There were a couple different lawsuits that were brought. One was an individual person, his name was Coleman. They attempted to get class action certification on this particular lawsuit, but it failed. And what that means is the lawyers for the plaintiff, Coleman, in his civil suit, went to the court and said, judge, there is a lot of people, a lot of investors, patients, doctors that are similarly situated to our case. And it would be a benefit to the judicial time constraints, we call it judicial economy, to be able to handle this as a class action. And that way we could file one claim and everybody could just be part of our lawsuit. The judge said no. And he said, there are too many variables between doctors, patients, and investors about what they knew or didn't know about whether this was a fraud to be able to certify this as a class. So the class certification was denied, but the Coleman case did go on. There was a, uh, a resolution to it. They did come to some settlement. I don't know what that settlement is because at this point it's relatively confidential since I don't know what it is, but that did happen. In addition, the second lawsuit that was filed was a company called Partner Fund Management LP. And this was a basically a hedge fund or a venture capital fund. And what they did was they filed a lawsuit, obviously for the losses that they sustained 
in the investment that the, uh, the fund itself had made into Theranos, that lawsuit was also settled confidentially. The third big lawsuit that was out there, and I'm guessing everybody can guess this one, or I'm presuming everybody can guess this one, Walgreens. They said that they wanted their money back for the amount of time, energy, and money they, they expended in this Theranos slash Walgreens partnership for the Edison machines, and that also settled confidentially. The one lawsuit that I can tell you did settle, and I have the number for, is the SEC lawsuit, the civil suit against Theranos, where the Securities Exchange Commission sued the company for fraud, won $500,000. Part of the deal was Elizabeth Holmes was, was to step down as the CEO of Theranos. So that is the one I can actually tell you did resolve it. I can give you the number. I don't know if there's going to be any more lawsuits, but at this point, that's pretty much the, the big lawsuit traffic that I've seen in Theranos. I'll keep you posted if something else gets filed. Second question that I was asked, how is this fair for Balwani? His trial is set for next year, and this whole thing is going on in the news, on TV, on our, uh, you know, on our YouTube page. How is he supposed to get a fair trial? Good question. Let's talk for a second about the process. Normally, co-defendants that are charged in the same conspiracy can be tried together at the same time, unless the interests of justice require that they be tried separately. For example, they have inconsistent defenses, which is what's happening in this case. Elizabeth Holmes says it's Balwani's fault because you know he beat me or he was uh, somehow manipulative to me, and that's why these two cases have been severed. Now, the problem is gonna be for Mr. Balwani's lawyers to be able to find a jury that hasn't been somehow tainted by the Elizabeth Holmes trial. And what'll happen is when they start doing their voir dire, trying to pick jurors, they're obviously gonna be focusing a lot more on, did you watch any of the videos, YouTube? Uh, did you see the uh, Netflix special? Have you read the book that's been published? Are you listening to the daily podcast on Theranos? You know, on top of, are you interested in the trial and do you know what happened in the Elizabeth Holmes trial? It's gonna be a little bit harder for him, but the interest of justice require that he get a fair and impartial jury. I think it's gonna be tough to do, but I'm sure they'll eventually get a jury. Next question that I was asked is of interest. Why are there no TV cameras inside of the courtroom? Super good question. The reason there are no cameras inside of the courtroom is because federal courts only have one person that is keeping track of what's happening in the proceedings. And that person is the official court reporter. The federal courts do not allow video, photography, or anybody that can come in that has some sort of recording device. It is traditional, it's never been that way. A lot of states do it. For example, I'm here in Florida, we have sunshine law. Unless the court determines that the courtroom has to be sealed for some compelling purpose, it's always open to cameras and recording and anybody else to come in and watch. So what happens in cases like this? In federal courts, as opposed to a cameraman or a videographer, what they have is something called a sketch artist. And sketch artists actually go in and draw with chalk and you know pencils and all that stuff, a scene of what's happening in the trial. Traditionally, that's been allowed. Um, I have a couple. Here's one of uh, our partner, George Tragos, years ago in a federal case. This is kind of what they look like. 
if you look back you'll in the other videos that we've done, you'll see behind me, for example, are a couple of sketches that I have from one of my trials. Behind me also are some other sketches that we've had in various federal criminal cases. These are very normal. I will try to put up some of the sketches from the actual Elizabeth Holm trial for you somehow in this video so you can at least see what they look like. Last question for today. Have there been any plea discussions that have gone on in this case? Great question. Let me start by saying, I don't know. But my guess from being a trial lawyer for 20 years and actually handling federal fraud cases, my guess is yes. And what I'm guessing has happened is that the government provided something called a plea agreement, some point in the pre-trial time. And what normally happens, and this is very common, is the government will make an offer for a deal in something called a plea agreement. And that plea agreement is an official document that the U.S. Attorney's Office provides, and it says, this is our deal. And it can have all kinds of things inside of it. Normally what you'll see is you have to plead guilty, you have to accept responsibility for the things that you've done, and because of that, the government normally will give you a break in the sentencing guideline calculation or what they're actually going to charge you with or potentially sentencing you, sentence you with. The courts always have authority to make their own decisions, so normally the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office does not provide binding plea agreements, although there is a possibility for a binding agreement. We call it a C4 in, in lingo because that's the uh, particular chapter uh, in the plea section that it falls under, which basically says if the judge doesn't accept it, then the plea agreement goes away, you can go back to, to trial. I would be shocked if there were not plea negotiations. The problem, and again, my opinion is, because of the amount of charges that we're talking about and the amount of money, the sentencing guideline uh, in the federal system that they use to determine what a, an appropriate sentence would be is so high anyway that even the, the, the great deal they gave her probably meant a multi-million dollar restitution award, meaning money she would have to pay to defrauded investors. And I'm sure that it, she scores some minimum amount of prison, give or take five years, at least maybe more, at which point they decided that as a defense team, it wasn't worth the plea agreement and Elizabeth Holmes decided to go to trial. But again, uh, we'll see. Sometimes pleas happen in the middle of trials. Happens not as often as, uh, you know, pleas before, but it has happened. It's happened to me. So I'll keep you posted as things happen. Again, thank you all for the interest that you've had in this series. Again, if you like this video, give me a thumbs up. If you have comment, please leave it below. If you have a question, let me know. We'll see if I can answer them for you. And of course, please subscribe to the channel. It helps us out a lot. It'll also give you notice when I post the next video. So until next time, see you again. Thanks for watching this episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you like this content, please share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our page and like our videos. If you want some interaction, get in the comments and we'll be sure to get back to you. If you want to know any more information about our firm or this page, you can find out in the description or visit tragoslaw.com. We post multiple times throughout the week, so make sure you hit that bell so you can get the notification and not miss out on the next episode.